Good morning, Temple Baptist Church. Pastor Aaron here. I bring you greetings from your daughter church, Restoration Church. It's a privilege for me to be able to be here and speak to you this morning. In fact, we were hoping to be there with you live. Uh, those of you who are gathered at the building and be there live with you. Uh, however, at this very moment, Restoration Church is having its own uh, outdoor special uh, uh, service. And so I don't think I ever thought, looking ahead into the pastoral journey, that I could ever say that I'm preaching in two different places at the exact same time. And yet, lo and behold, here we are but still privileged to be able to uh, uh, be with you this morning. I, I've been praying about you know, what, does, what does Temple Baptist Church, the people at Temple Baptist Church, need to be encouraged by or challenged with? And I just kept coming back to, let's just talk about Jesus. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So in whatever posture you need to take, uh, would you join me in prayer as we, as we kind of dig into this this morning? God, we come to you simply just to ask that by your spirit and by your word, uh, that we would simply be able to worship Jesus this morning. That we would know him more. That we would be, appreciate him more. That we would be grateful for who he is and what he has done. And that we would respond to who Jesus is. To want to walk closer with him. To be like him. To love like him. To sacrifice like him. Lord, would we just have this amazing time of worship to Jesus this morning together. We pray for all of these things in your name. Amen. I'm sure that you are sick of hearing the phrase. Here we go. During these uncertain and confusing times, and if I began like that, Aaron, we get it, okay? We hear that every single day. And every single week. And I think at Restoration Church, every time I go up there, during these uncertain and confusing times, and then you go into it, we get it. They're uncertain. They're confusing times that we all are living, uh, living in right now. This is the season that this is our reality that we all are, are living in. And yet, at the same time, during these uncertain and confusing times, <laughs> what is clear to me, even though all of us were uh, had this mindset even before, but now it's just even clearer, that all of us are wrestling with the same unease. Whether you are a woman or a man or, or rich or poor or Christian or atheist, every person is trying to make sense of this life. Everyone is trying to make sense of what doesn't seem to make any sense at all. One of my favorite movies is called The Theory of Everything, and it chronicles the life of Stephen Hawking. And of course, Stephen Hawking is probably the world's premier astrophysicist. And of course, famously, he's also the, one of the world's most premier atheists that's ever existed. And Stephen Hawking... One of the smartest people in the world once said this, remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense. Try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist. 
He said this at a university campus. I don't even think that was in the movie, but it's a famous quote by Stephen Hawking. One of the smartest people in the world is struggling and wrestling with the same burden that every person wrestles with. They're trying to make sense of this life that doesn't seem to make sense at all. And in fact, uh, Stephen Hawking's life, which is chronicled by the movie The Theory of Everything, Stephen Hawking dedicates his life to this pursuit of trying to make sense of it. In fact, he calls it the God equation to fill up chalkboards with mathematical and uh, 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 mathematical equations to now try to Uh, say to everyone, see, we don't need a God. We don't need faith. We figured it out. This is what life is all about. It makes sense now. It's called the, the God equation or the theory of everything. And in the movie, it shows that he does come up with this God equation. The irony is Stephen Hawking later, uh, debunked his own equation and Stephen Hawking died and uh, due to a battle with uh, ALS Stephen Hawking died never making sense never finding his equa- the answer to his equation of what this life is supposed to be about even though the movie The Theory of Everything is about Stephen Hawking The most fascinating person in the movie is actually his wife, Jane Hawking. And Jane Hawking had a completely different outlook on life, a completely different worldview than Stephen. While Stephen was an astrophysicist and an atheist, Jane Hawking was a devout Christian. And Jane dedicated her life serving her children and also uh, serving her husband who traveled the world, but was also his body was decaying due to his ALS. And the ridiculous thing is Stephen ends up leaving Jane. After everything that she had done for him, Stephen actually ends up leaving her for someone else. It's wild. But Jane's life was cemented in her faith in Jesus. And she once said this. Pay attention to this quote. Their theories, and that's speaking of Stephen Hawking and other astrophysicists, their theories reduce the whole of creation to a handful of material components. They complain with a weary disdain of the stupidity of the human race that human beings are always asking why. Perhaps they should be asking themselves why this is so. And get this. Might it not be that our minds have been programmed to ask why? The why question is the one which, above all, not astrophysicists, but theologians should be addressing. I think that's a profound quote. Because you've probably felt the burden of in a world of iPhones where the knowledge of the world is is in the palm of your hand, in a world of iPhones and human advancement and genetic cloning, you, you might feel the burden, is Jesus even relevant in this modern day world? I mean, maybe back in yes yesteryear in the good old days Jesus was relevant when times were simpler but now that we're so advanced now that we're so woke in our society is Jesus even relevant does Jesus have anything to say to this world 
And it is in this that Jane identifies where Jesus is so important because it doesn't matter how many advancements you make. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter if you're an atheistic astrophysicist. Everyone is wrestling with the same question and burden that life doesn't make any sense. And here's where we're going today. In Jesus' life, begins to make sense more specifically only when acknowledging Jesus as supreme over everything else does life begin to make sense maybe you're wrestling with trying to finally I found my God equation in a job life will make sense and a spouse and children whatever that might be life will now begin to make sense but here's what we're going to look at today, that only when acknowledging Jesus as supreme will life begin to make sense. With that being said, go to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 15. It's just, just three verses this morning. And which, by the way, if you don't have a habit of underlining or highlighting in your Bible, this is the time to do it. Okay, so if you've got a pen, you've got a highlighter with you, this is the time to underline these verses and highlight these verses because these are extremely, extremely important verses. Chapter 1, verse 15 uh, down to 17 says this. Speaking of Jesus. So you can stand if you wish, uh, if you can, as I read Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17. It says this. He, that's speaking of Jesus. I'm going to read this slowly because there's a lot in here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." You may be seated. A man named Paul writes this letter to a church in the city of what's called Colossae. It was a church plant, not too dissimilar from Restoration Church, a young church plant, a, a new church plant that was started in this city that was young and they needed maturing, they needed teaching. And they were also in the context that Paul is writing in. Again, it's not all that dissimilar from where we find ourselves along the 401 corridor in the year 2020 because these people in the city of Colossae were also uh, struggling with the temptation and pressure on so many different fronts of the offer or promise of spiritual satisfaction from all sides. Whether that be uh, Jewish tradition whether that be Greek philosophy or whether that be a hundred other options that existed out there, there was the pressure and all of them saying at the same time, we offer you sanity and satisfaction and solution to the chaos in your life. And I think we wrestle with the same thing. I mean, you might be sitting here saying, well, there's so many options out there that everyone is is." is is plugging. Everyone says you need to follow in your life to offer some sort of satisfaction or solution from the chaos for that so finally my life would make sense. Which one am I ch which one to choose? 
so many people struggle with that. A lot of young people struggle with that. There's so many options. Which one am I supposed to actually choose? And here's what begins to happen is Jesus becomes just a hot plate on a, line, on a buffet table line with all of the other different options, and we fill our lives with so much stuff, but we have no idea why. It's almost like we're throwing everything against the wall and trying to figure out whatever sticks. And what happens is all of us, and this is so true in our day, all of us are so busy but we still have no idea what we're supposed to do. We're doing everything, but we have no idea what thing we're actually supposed to do. Life still doesn't make any sense. And the same was true 2,000 years ago in this church. There's so many options out there, all promising the same thing. And the same burden still remains. Here's the truth that Paul begins with, and I love this. In order to change your life, here's here's what's always true, guys. In order to change your life, it starts with Christology. It starts with, what do you believe about Jesus? And I love that in that context, this is where Paul begins. It starts with, what do you believe is true? Forget everything else. What do you believe is true about Jesus? Jesus, because Jesus is not just another option on the table. What's the key phrase in this passage? Shout it out. I'm not there with you. I can't hear you, but shout it out. What's the key phrase as I wrote, as I read through those three verses? It's all or all things. I mean, it's for by him, all things were created All things were created through him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. And here's the simple message. Jesus is supreme over all things. He's not just another option. He's not just on a hot plate uh, uh, beside everything else that you can pick and choose from. Jesus is supreme over all things. And we have a confused outlook on life because we have a confused belief about Jesus and only when we acknowledge and understand his supremacy over all things will our life begin to make sense. I could say more, but I just got to get into this passage because there's, there's two important phrases that we need to talk about, we need to understand. And they're right at the beginning in verse 15, two really important phrases about Jesus, describing who he is. First one is this. He's the image of the invisible God. And the second one, he's the firstborn of all creation. So let's take a look at the first phrase. He's the image of the invisible God. So what we know from scripture and what we know right here in Colossians chapter one is that God is invisible. God is invisible. It says right here in our passage and also John chapter one, verse 18, it says no one's ever seen God for God is spirit. It's pretty... No one has ever seen God. So God is invisible. But it says here in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And it uses this phrase image. And if, if those, if you've been listening to Restoration Church's sermons, those, those in our church know that I'm always talking about this word image because it's a super important word. But here in verse 15, Jesus was, we were created in the image of God, but it says Jesus is the image of God. And this word image comes from the Greek word called icon, which means it looks like or represents something else. And so what this means is we're always, 
people are always asking, where do we go to see God? Like, do we have to go to some mountaintop in the Himalayas or some cave of wonders to identify, like, this, this is where God is? Whereas, like, where do I go to see what God looks like, to see what God loves like, to see what God serves like? What would God do in the situation? Well, the answer is it's not on a mountaintop somewhere. It's in the person of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And even though we can look around in creation and we see God's handiwork, but ultimately, guys, we see God in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. John Calvin says this, that Jesus' righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, in short, his entire self. Which is identified in John 14, verse 9, that Jesus says, can actually say this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So if you're looking for God in other places, I mean, you can go to the library, find a whole bunch of books that claim that people have seen God, you know, in a piece of burnt toast <laughs> or whatever. Guys, you can't see God if you don't see Jesus. You can't see God without Jesus. In fact, you don't know God without Jesus. So that's the image of the invisible God. Secondly, he's the firstborn of all creation. This phrase has caused controversy for over a thousand years. If it, it, it's always been, you know, there's been heresy floating around this phrase since it was written, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, so it's always been around, but a man named Arius made it mainline, and his followers called it Arianism. I don't know if Arius called it after his name, but at least his followers called it Arianism. But the point was that Christ was created. That's what they claimed. Christ was created. And this became so mainstream uh, that church leaders established a council in a city of Nicaea called the Council of Nicaea and wrote down a creed called the Nicene Creed that we still hold to today. It was so mainstream. This, this, and they cemented what we still believe today based off of this text and the whole of Scripture that Jesus was not created. He was begotten, but not made. He has a unique relationship as the son with the father, but he was not created by the father. In fact, the dilemma really should be answered by the very next verse. This is the firstborn of all creation. And then it says in verse 16, for by him, all things were created. So this really shouldn't have been a dilemma at all. And that word firstborn, this is really what I want to go to. The, the word firstborn, we immediately think of preeminence. It's like the first one to uh, exist but it doesn't just mean pre-existence, uh, pre sorry. It also means preeminence, like the most important one. So those of you in, in this culture, those of you who are firstborn, congratulations. <laughs> You're the most important, okay? Unfortunately for me, I was thirdborn. So I don't know what that says. But <laughs> what it means is that I kind of got the hand-me-downs. And in this culture, you got less of an inheritance. You got kind of the scraps, but you're the thirdborn. That's what firstborn means. It's the most important, the preeminent one. You were the one to get all of the benefits. So congratulations, those of you who are firstborn. 
God even says of his people, Israel, he calls them the firstborn of God. They were the preeminent nation. They were his people. And in that firstbornness, they were to shine to all other nations that this is what it looks like to live as God's people. So we come back to what does this mean then for us? If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn of all creation. What does this mean then to us as the created ones, as the ones created in the image of God? This is what it looks, this is what it means. Okay, this is what it means. As you're thinking of, does, where does life make sense? Here ultimately is the answer. From the beginning, guys, you were meant to look like Jesus. It's as simple as that. You're trying to make sense of like, what, what am I supposed to do in life? Ultimately, you were created to look like Jesus. Now, in our fallen, broken world, it doesn't always look like that. In fact, it often doesn't look like that. And yet, in Colossians 3, it says that we are being renewed day after day after the image of our Creator, Jesus. All through our passage, you can see these prepositions that for by Him, through Him, for Him, all things were created and what all of that is especially in the word in him all things were created saying Jesus was before the created he was a part of creating and also he is the agent through God's creation in summary all of creation has his mark especially you and I created in the image of God my parents have these uh I guess knickknacks that they collect Hummels or Royal Dalton I think it's called And on the bottom of those things are a a mark of authenticity. This has the the creator's name and the number, how many have they created, so that you know it's not created by Walmart. This thing doesn't come from Walmart. It's actually created by the creator's hands. It's his mark of authenticity. And that's what image is. We carry his creativity, his grace, his look, his DNA. Jane Hawking once said this again, scientists still cannot satisfactorily explain why some human beings are prepared to give their lives for others. The complexity of such anomaly lies far outside the scope of their purely mechanical grasp. The spiritual sophistication of musical, artistic, politic, and scientific creativity far exceeds that of any primitive function programmed into the brain as a basic human survival. What she's saying in summary is that left to ourselves, guys, this should be a dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest. We've all heard that before. However, because of Jesus, and this is what we cling to, we actually were created with the mark of our creator. So that every time you love, you're actually emulating the mark of your creator. You're loving as Jesus loves. Every time you sacrifice or lay down your life, what you are doing is emulating our sacrificial Jesus. The mark of our creator. That is when life makes sense. You were meant to look like Jesus. And if you don't get that, of course life doesn't make any sense. Begs the question. 
And if there's anyone from Restoration Church listening, they'll probably roll their eyes because I say that way too much, way too often. It usually means I'm wrapping up. So I'm wrapping up. It begs the question, though. Why don't we? Why don't we look like Jesus? Why doesn't this world look like Jesus? If this world has its mark of authenticity, why don't we? And I think as you go through this passage, if the stats still remain true, most people in Canada are with us so far. Like, oh yeah, even if they have no idea why they're created, they still believe that they were created by a God. They have no idea of meaning or purpose, but at least, hey, there's a God, there's got to be some kind of, there's got to be some sort of meaning or purpose out there. So when they say we're created through him, okay, that's good. We, we believe that, we're on that. But here is where we actually start to lose people. At the end of verse 16, when it says all things were created through him, okay, I'm with you with, there, but here's where we lose people. And here's maybe where we lose you. And for him. This is a whole other ballgame. Okay, I'm created through Jesus. Great. But for Jesus? Eh. Here's the point I'm going. We lose our sense when we lose Jesus as supreme. Life gets chaotic when we lose Jesus as supreme. In, a, in that verse in 16, when it names off uh, all things are created, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those, those aren't just random words that Paul is saying. All of those things are powers that would seek to claim supremacy over Lord Jesus. You know, dominions, authorities, thrones, those things that would want to take power away from Jesus. And when that happens, life gets chaotic. When Jesus is not acknowledged as supreme, those powers are then in rebellion against God and against each other. This happens in all spheres of life. It happens when you go into the gym. You know, a lot of people at the gym, they're not there to be healthy, they're there to be powerful. In fact, I know a lot of people, several people, maybe not a lot, who've gotten in trouble, like criminal records, because they've gotten in fights trying to assert their dominance over other people. They're not willing to say Jesus is Lord of my life. They want to be powerful. And life got chaotic. This happens in marriages where the husband and wife try to assert their dominance over each other. They don't want to submit to one another, as it says in Ephesians 5, and definitely not submit to Jesus. So they want to assert their own power and control over each other, and that marriage falls apart. N.T. Wright, though, says this, though the powers are now in rebellion, he remains their true Lord. Guys, even though we, make, we say this, make Jesus the Lord of life, you can't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. You can acknowledge what is already true, but you can't make him Lord. He is Lord. All the way till, and life is going to continue to be chaotic and powers are still going to be in rebellion until we are promised that in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and all of that power struggle will be let go and chaos will cease. See guys, you lose your sense when you lose Jesus as supreme. One more little phrase I want to point to 
because we didn't really address it yet. It's in the last verse, and it says, he's before all things, and then it says this, in him all things hold together. I'm a little sympathetic to those who are probably reading this for the first time, or even those when this was written 2,000 years ago, those who are reading it for the first time who actually witnessed Jesus, and they say they saw him in the flesh and blood, and they saw him do some pretty cool things, but this is kind of a stretch. This is a big jump from even, even, you know, turning water into wine to holding all things together. Like, life itself is sustained by, a, by this person, Jesus, like down to the atoms and molecules, which they didn't even know existed at the time, is sustained by this person. I mean, that's kind of a stretch. That's kind of, that's kind of a jump. I mean, we saw him, flesh and blood. He's, he's a person. And this man is now holding creation together, sustaining, its, sustaining life itself. And yet, we're given glimpses of this through the Gospels when uh, there's a storm over the Sea of Galilee and the waves start to pick up and the disciples start freaking out and Jesus is sleeping on the bottom of the boat and Jesus comes up and calms the storm that even the weather obeys this, this man and the disciples are afraid of him. Who is this man that sustains weather itself? This meaning of holding together in him all things hold together just simply means that it's commendable. You're recommending someone you can trust to hold things together. Just like, you know, we, we don't let anyone babysit our kids. It's got to be someone that we can trust will hold things together. Someone we can trust. And I wouldn't commend anyone to you that I wouldn't trust myself. And here's what we take away from that, guys. Jesus is the only one who can hold your life together. And I can say this honestly in my own life. Like, without Jesus as Lord... I mean, I'd, I'd be one of those guys in the gym trying to assert my own dominance, trying to be powerful over other people. And I'm a small guy. I mean, I'd get into big trouble. I'd get beat up if I tried to assert my dominance. <laughs> I'd be a jerk at my house trying to control my family. I mean, there's a lot of jerk husbands out there trying to assert their dominance over their family, trying to control their family. Jesus is the only one who can hold your life together, guys. He's the basic operating principle. There's another man who, about 100 years ago, or over 100 years ago, actually, at the turn of the 20th century, and when modernism was coming in, where all young men were trying to invent the next thing, they were trying to uh, establish themselves in the history books, change the world. This man's name was G.K. Chesterton. He, he was an atheist himself, as many were in that time. But G.K. Chesterton was, came to this realization of life-making sense and eventually gave his life to Jesus. And he says this statement. Listen to this statement. I am the man who, with utmost daring, discovered what had been discovered before. I freely confess all the idiotic ambitions of the end of the 19th century, I did, like all of the other solemn little boys, try to be in advance of the age. Like them, I tried to be some 10 minutes in advance of the truth. He says this, and what I found was that I was actually 1,800 years behind it. Guys, the key to life has already happened in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is supreme, life begins to make sense. He's not another option on the table. 
my desire for you and for our church is that during this uncertain time, that we would have such a thirst for Jesus, that we would say, as the psalmist once declared, as the deer pants for the water, water so my soul longs for you. Guys, what holds this universe together, it's not an idea, it's not a virtue, it's a person, the resurrected Jesus.